You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So we are in this uh, series in the life of David. It is also Palm Sunday, and I want to connect uh, these two things from 2 Samuel chapter 6. It is the story where David um, goes to get the Ark of the Covenant to bring it to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is now the capital. He's going to unite the sort of uh, uh, role he has as king and the presence of God, uniting the nation and, unite, and, and mediating, uniting the nation with God there in Jerusalem. I'll start this way. A picture is worth a thousand words. You've all heard that. I did some research. It's originally, it's a Chinese proverb. It goes something like this. Hearing something a hundred times isn't better than seeing it once. There are actually people that have written on how and when this came into the English language. So when did it go from, you know, a Chinese proverb into the English language? English is one of the last uh, languages for this to emerge as its own proverb and its own language. The best that people can find, it's been a part of our culture for 200 years. In 1808, it started this way. That tear, good girl, is worth 10,000 words. Doesn't that take your breath away? Unless you're at home and you have to say that to your wife. Um, I mean, don't do that, you know. Here's another one. One fact well understood by observation and well-guided development is worth a thousand times more than a thousand words. 1858. You know, the truth is, it's always been true. And, and we're here, listen, we're here to study the Bible this morning, to look into God's Word, this book of thousands of words. And at the same time, God reveals His truth to us so often in pictures. And we have one of those pictures this morning. It's a scene that's going to be described, a scene captured by artists throughout the ages. It is going to be a picture of the holiness of God painted on the pages of God's revelation this morning. And we are meant, as people, to stare into it. And so I want to begin by reading. Here in um, 2 Samuel chapter 6, we'll read a little bit, talk about it, read a little bit, and then... Um, make our way through. It begins this way. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Well, where we are in the story here is David has been um, already anointed as king by Samuel when he was a young boy uh, in his teenage years. Uh, several years pass, he has now been uh, coronated as the king amongst all the people. And in Second uh, Samuel 5, the chapter just before this, they won a, a deciding battle against the Philistines. Now David moves into Jerusalem, that sets up his home capital, and the first thing he does when he gets there is his thought is, I've got to go get the ark of God. What is the ark of the Lord, the ark of God? Well, it was a wooden box, a fairly big wooden box. It was 
Uh, Israel was instructed to build it shortly after they entered into the wilderness, after they left Egypt. It's overlaid on the inside and the outside with gold. It's, um, it's, uh, it's on top of it, this mercy seat. You've got these two angels uh, that, are, that are facing each other, and the ark was meant to be placed in the innermost part of the tabernacle, the sort of, uh, you know, the, the tent temple, the, the, the portable temple of God. In what? So they, in the tabernacle, in the, um, in the innermost part of it, in a place called the Holy of Holies. And the idea is that the uh, transcendent um, uh, God whose glory fills the universe that his presence would be localized for his people here at the ark, here in the Holy of Holies. And in the ark, there were these three things. The contents of the ark were this. There was a, a, a jar of manna that had come from the wilderness uh, when, the, when God was feeding with manna. There was a Aaron's rod, who was the first high priest. And then there's the Ten Commandments. You find that in Hebrews 9, 4. These are the three things that were in it. It represented this. The, the ark, this presence of God, it represented, one, the rule or the reign of God over the lives of His people. You, you see this, it says that He was, uh, who, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. David here knew that God reigned over His people and He, and he reigned over Himself as, as King. That God was the ruler and he was their provision. This is what this manna picture, this why the man is in there. It's this picture of God's provision. He's the king. It also represents the mediation of God. That in front of the ark of the covenant, the sacrifice was made on the day of atonement. The high priest would enter the holy of holies. And it's that place that God met with his people and instructed them and forgave them and communicated with them. It also represented the revelation of God, that that's where God spoke to His people. It, it encased, it held the Ten Commandments of God, and His presence was a symbol of, of that communication with them, and it dwelt in the Holy of Holies, that the God of the universe resided with His people. And for David, bringing God back in, so bringing the Ark of the Covenant into the capital, into Jerusalem, it, it, it's David bringing God back into the center of the lives of his people, bringing God back into the center of his life, of his existence. David wanted the presence of God to be the identity of this kingdom. You know, this scene here in 2 Samuel 6, this is the original Raiders of the lost ark, actually. The ark's been gone for 20 years. All the reign of Saul, the ark has not been a part of the center of Israel. It, it really reflects Saul's own view about God. Listen, he, he, he had, had great things to say about God. He knew all the theology about God. He was not interested in the presence of God. You can go back to the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6. You see that they were using the Ark of a Covenant as like a little token, a, a lucky's rabbit's foot, take it into to war with the uh, Philistines. They get routed. Philistines um, capture the Ark. 
and the, and the story ensues. It's a story for a different day, but it's, but it's fascinating. And then when the, it reeks, the ark of God wreaks havoc on the Philistines, they send it back. And when it comes back to Israel, they, they put it in this place, Kiriath-Yerim, Baal Judah is called here, and it stays there for 20 years until David goes back to get it. That the presence of God was set aside. David's saying, we we got to have the presence of God back in our midst. And so look what happens. Uh, they, they understand this. So it says in, in 3 and 4, it picks up. And so they carried the ark of God on a new cart. Got some new wheels for the cart, right? And, and uh, for the ark, and then brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, cousin of the other one last week, Sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So here's Abinadab, he's the dad, he's got two sons, Uzzah's in the back, Ahio's in the front. And then in verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and uh, castanets and cymbals. I have no, I have no idea what a castanet is. Um, I think you, you fish with it or something. So... Um, and it's not true. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, because the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So you have a scene in your mind. Here's Abinadab, his two sons. They have a shiny new cart. In fact, the text tells us that twice. So they're rolling in the new cart with the ark of God. God's got a new ride ready for the nine-mile parade from where it is in Kiriath-Yerim, this Baal Judah, to Jerusalem. And there's a band there, and everything's going fine until they get to the threshing floor of Nacon. And Nacon should have fixed the road there, but he didn't. And the uh, the oxen stumble, and there's Uzzah. And he sees the oxen stumble, he sees the cart bounce, uh, the ark of God he thinks is about to bounce out of the cart and hit the ground and oozes in the back and he, and he reaches him, he reaches and he, and he touches it. I mean, to keep it from falling. And then the text says God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. This is a gut reaction. It's like when you're driving with your kids, you know, and you have to slam on the brakes and you reach your arm out, you know, to, to, to try to keep them safe. I mean, you just react. It's just, it's just instinct. What in the world is going on here? What is it that just happened? I mean, they've got this party happening. I mean, the band is playing and all of a sudden, Uzzah is dead there next to the ark. The party turned to a funeral. What's the error? Well, to begin with, let me tell you two things. The scene is wrong for two reasons. One, the cart is, is out of place. There isn't supposed to be a cart. In fact, the ark of God had these rings by, by design. God designed the ark, had Israel build it. They had rings built into the side of the ark that poles went through the rings. The poles were never supposed to leave the rings. And the ark 
was always supposed to be carried, never put on a cart. And the other thing is, Abinadab and his two sons, there's only three of them, there should be, if you're going to carry the ark the way that it's designed, there's got to be at least four people, and not just any four people, a specific family of priests that come from the line of Moses who have purified themselves and sanctified themselves because this is the holy, the, 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 the holy box of God. In fact, those priests were assigned to care for all of the holy things of God. God specifically appointed the family of priests in fact, the whole role of those priests were to carry the holy things. But they weren't supposed to touch them. They, they carried them. They weren't supposed to load them in a cart. They were supposed to carry them. The people of Israel wandered in the wilderness. They carried the ark from place to place. They enter the holy land. They carry the ark. They come to the river Jordan. And because of the presence of God, Joshua parts the river the ark crosses, they go to Jericho, they take the cart, they march it around Jericho. They carry the ark everywhere they go. But why is carrying it so important? Why is not touching it so important? Why, why did Uzzah have to die over this thing? Well, I think there's three reasons. One, because God said. So whether it was disregard for God's instruction or it was ignorance of His instruction or just maybe they just simply believed, listen, you know, it's 500 years later, we know a thing or two, some things are more efficient, some things are more practical. I would say this, it's a dangerous place to be when we're outside of God's Word in our lives. Our understanding God's Word or the wise behind God's Word is not the prerequisite for living under God's Word. Secondly, I'd say it this way, is, is not only because God said, but because God's holiness is on His terms, not our terms. I mean, God's holiness, His glory, His perfection, His love. Listen, God's holiness is not diminished by His love. His justice is not diminished by His grace, holiness. We often uh, think of holiness as being uh, morally pure, and that's definitely part of it. Holiness means this. It means, it means only. It means set apart. It, it means utterly and distinctly unique. One way to describe God's holiness is to think about the sun. The sun, I mean, it's different, it's unique, there's nothing like it in, in, in what we see in our sky. And so we could say the sun is, is holy, but not only the sun holy because of its uniqueness and, and power and, 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 and space around it make it holy. We need the sun. Without it, life could not exist. The sun creates energy in, in, in enough in one hour power every electronic device in the world for a year, and without the sun, we could not exist. But if we get too close to the sun, it would destroy us. I mean, God's holiness is like that. Without it, we could not exist. But if we get too close to it, it will destroy us. Not because it's bad, but because it's so good. 
See, I think we naturally go where David goes. I mean, David is going to, you'll find out in the next verse, he's going to be angry because the Lord bursts forth against Uzzah. How can this be fair? But I think it's this. I think it is a failure to see our own frailty before the holiness of God. We lose sight that His grace is operating towards us all the time. So we take it for granted. We become, uh, we feel entitled to it. And then we catch a glimpse of His holiness and then we think something's wrong. We think God to be unfair. And never stop to consider the unfairness of grace. So I know it's, I mean, the, the way it's, we talk about things today. You know, God is love. And, and that's the God that, that we want. That's the God that's popular. That, that's the God that, that sells and is attractive. I mean, God is love. And listen, there's no doubt at all in the mind of Scripture that God is love. But to fully understand what it means that God is love, and you've heard me say this before, you, you have to understand that God is merciful, which means He does not give us the very thing we deserve. But to understand His mercy, you've got to understand His grace. It means He's granted to us that which we don't deserve. But to understand that, we've got to understand that God is a God of infinite wrath and justice and righteousness. And that there, there is no other way that He can approach or um, that, that, that our sin comes into contact with Him. But to understand that, you've got to understand that God is a God of infinite glory. See, I think that's the third reason um, why this takes place. Why it's not supposed to be loaded on the cart. Why it's supposed to be carried because we're never supposed to forget the weight of His glory. That's why it's carried. To feel the weight of His presence. To feel the weight of His holiness. So I don't think we do a very good job feeling the weight of the glory of God. Well, David gets angry um, here in verse 8. It says, And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. David's angry. Who's he angry with? Is he angry with Uzzah? Is he angry with God? Is he angry with himself? Probably all of the above. The holiness of God, it says, had, had broken out that day, and Uzzah was ground zero. But every person there felt the presence of God's holiness. And David is is stabbed awake by the holiness of God. He realized the presence of God was greater than he 
imagined, more powerful than he'd known. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? That's his question. How can God's presence come to me? How can one come near the holiness and glory of God and live? And there's only one way. Is there has to be a mediator. And David realized that, that it was God's presence that he desired so greatly. And yet the holiness of his presence is all-consuming. How, how can I ever be in the presence of God? See, it's because of sin that holiness is fatal. Hebrews said that, says that God is a consuming fire, the blazing Glory of His presence consumes every impurity, every sin, every imperfection. No one can survive. Before David will come to a place of worship, which he will, he comes to a place of utter desolation. He is undone by the presence of the holiness and glory of God. Listen, our worship, when we come to worship God, it is... It is not us ascending to God. It is not us going to get to God. God comes to us. We don't enter His presence. He enters our presence. And the realization of that, when He does, is that we are undone. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, in the year King Uzziah died, he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And Isaiah, who's been preaching amazingly difficult and, and, and sermons of judgment on the people, finds himself completely undone. And then truly knows what it is to worship. See, if you haven't come to terms with the holiness and the presence, the all-consuming, blazing fire of God's glory. So that's the, that's the prerequisite of worship. Well, look at what happens, verse 12. And it was told to King David, The Lord's blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because, the ark of, because of the ark of God. So David went brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, the sacrificed an ox and a fatted ape. So they're not making that mistake anymore. They're carrying it, taking six steps, making a sacrifice. Makes nine miles a long way. Then verse 14, David danced before the Lord with all his might. And he was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, which is his wife, looked out the window, saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people. 
The whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. And all the people departed, each to his own house. Obed-Edom cares for the ark. Great blessing comes to him. The presence of God on the terms of God brings blessing and grace and rejoicing. It's actually what we were created for. We were created to dwell and to live and to have our being in the presence of God. So David goes again to bring the ark into Jerusalem, but this time it's God's way. It's on God's terms, and the result is joy. I mean, the result is like footloose kind of joy, you know? You know, Kevin Bacon dancing at the end of Footloose, singing, and just, if you don't, you make a note outside uh, to, to watch Footloose. It'll help you interpret this passage. Well, I want you to see what happens. Um, this last section, I make two observations about it. David returned to bless his household. So he goes back home. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of the servant, uh, his servants, female servants, and one of the, uh, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, well, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as a prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. I'll make merry before the Lord. And I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Well, I'll make two observations about this last section, and I think there's a lot more to say. And one day I'm going to come back to this passage and spend some more time the first observation is this, is that David is genuinely and humbly unconcerned with himself. I mean, humility and freedom have overwhelmed him, and he's not concerned with anyone's opinion. His audience is God, and that is the most freeing place in the world to be, an audience of one. And Michael, his wife, she misses it. I mean, in many ways, she is her father's daughter. I mean, she's going to get a bad rap here, maybe, maybe worse than she deserves, but at the end of the day, she missed it. She's concerned with appearances and moderation, and like her father, she is not interested in the disruption of God's presence. And I think because of this, however you take verse 23, that last verse of, of her not having any children to the day of her death, Either, either because David put her out or because it was God's judgment. But either way, however you read it, David's royal line is not going to be shared with Saul. David's royal line will not include children from the daughter of Saul. She missed it. But here's the second observation. As genuinely and humbly unconcerned with himself, I want to say this. David is a terrible husband. 
I mean, he loved the Lord. He worshiped the Lord. He led a nation in honoring God. He was a great leader, a man after God's own heart, a warrior, a, a poet, but a terrible husband. He left her behind. Comes in, first thing he does, oh yeah, well, God chose me over your dad, so there. You know, it's the first rule. You can't ever bring up the in-laws in a fight. And the second one, he digs at her about the servant, female servants, and I think it's unnecessary that he did it. Sure, I'll listen, I'm going to make myself a base that you haven't seen the depths of my humility. Except in his own marriage. The presence of God's holiness. Listen to this. The presence of God's holiness will reveal the fault lines in your marriage. We cannot do marriage on our own. We need the Spirit. That's why Malachi 3.16 says, So when you're joined as man and wife, the Spirit of God's right there with you. It's a part of that union. That's why Ephesians 5 and the instructions to husbands and wives, it begins with be filled with the Spirit. It is not enough to love God, to worship God. The second command is like the first, Jesus says, love one another. In 1 Peter 3, 7, 1 Peter 3, 7, in case you missed it, guys, it says live with your wives in an understanding way. And if you don't, God's not listening to your prayer. The worship of God is lived out in our relationships, lived out in our marriages, if you're married. 1 John 4 says, since God so loved us, then what does it say? We expect it to say, since God so loved us, we ought to love God back. And listen, we should love God back. The Bible's replete with instruction about loving God. But here it tells us how we love God. Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. To love God back is to love others. And if your marriage, if you're married, ground zero is your spouse. Even if they're difficult, even if it seems like they're missing it. Your holiness, your worship, your love for God doesn't give you a, a pass there. Don't worry. I, will, I promise you I'll bring it back up again someday, uh, but I won't tell you when. Um, here's how I'd end it. Make sure we understand. The presence of God. In creation, the presence of God was with man. It goes all the way back to the beginning. Sin comes in, man gets separated from God. Adam and Eve come face to face with the holiness and glory of God, but also His grace. But sin brought separation. And throughout Genesis, God would show up periodically, always sovereignly directing His people, periodically present with His people. In the wilderness, He comes to Moses and says, Listen, I, I want to dwell with you. I wanna, I'm going to be with you. My presence is going to be localized in the ark, in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies. I'm going to go with you where you go. And there's two times the glory departs. One was, we talked about it earlier, when uh, the, the ark 
goes missing for 20 years. It gets captured by the Philistines. They declare the, the time a time of Ichabod, the glory of God, is gone. David here is bringing the presence of the glory of God back. The second time the glory of God departs, leaves, about 400 years later, just before Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple is torn to the ground. God's people are taken to Babylon as exiles. Ezekiel 20, I mean, chapter 10, verse 12. Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory of God. It stands up from between the two cherubim, between two of the angels. Stands up, fills the Holy of Holies, walks out of the Holy of Holies, through the inner court, through the outer court, out the east gate. And the presence of the glory of God leaves His people. You say, well, when did it, when did it come back? John 1.14 says, And the Word of God became flesh. It means it tabernacled among us and, and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God comes to man, His presence with us, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus becomes one of us to be with us, to be God with us. Word of God, the mediator of God, the King, whom every knee will bow, every tongue confess. And then 33 years after he enters humanity, he enters Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. It's the day we celebrate today, Palm Sunday. Fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. And you know where he goes? Enters Jerusalem, goes straight to the temple, and in his zeal turns over tables, kicks the money changers out, swings a whip around, the holiness of God. Luke tells us that when he comes into Jerusalem after the triumphal entry, he weeps over Jerusalem. And he weeps because the judgment was coming, holiness was coming, and they wouldn't be able to bear the weight of God's glory. And a few days later, Jesus will be handed over the crowds become accusers. The shouts of Hosanna turn into shouts of crucify Him. He entered humanity, tabernacled, clothed in humanity, God with us so He could be God for us. He came not to reign at Christmas. He came to die in our place as our sacrifice on Good Friday. He came to bear the weight of God's holiness because we couldn't. He came to endure the infinite wrath of God's righteousness because we can't survive it. He came to display God's blazing glory to us because without Him we can't behold it. He came to pour out God's grace and mercy on us because having taken away our sin, He clothes us in His perfection, brings us into the presence of God, the presence we long for. And there will be yet another triumphal entry, if you will. It will come when He returns. This time, he'll come as the king with the sword of justice. And for all who haven't received his grace, they will come face to face with his holiness. Let me ask you this morning. Have you beheld Jesus? The presence of, of God? Have you come to him? Have you, 
seen him high and lifted up in your place so that he can take and lift you into the presence of God? Do you, do you know him this morning? Do you know him as the one who covers you and makes you clean? If you don't, I invite you this morning to look to him. I pray for the faith this morning for you to trust him. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, we know that your holiness, this picture, is worth a thousand words. I pray your spirit would.